news. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who like their politics in colors other than red and blue. Now, normally it has been tradition on this podcast to talk about the issues that divide us, but that would be a bit tone deaf in light of the fact rival political factions and alliances that had been tested in recent years have united against Russia in response to the invasion of Ukraine. And to help frame the current conflict from the Russian perspective, I invited one of my all-time favorite guests, Ben Studebaker, back on to discuss the internal political workings of the country and how this might influence the decisions leadership makes as the war goes on. As always with Ben, I got a lot of context I wasn't getting from other sources. I hope you enjoy it. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. No surprise to anyone, the, the news is really all about Ukraine. I happened to go on vacation the week that Putin invaded. So I hadn't, so I, I went on vacation. I record an intro and an outro to every episode beforehand, and I was recording it a week prior, not knowing this would happen. And so I said to everyone, I'm recording this while I'm on vacation. Hopefully the world hasn't fallen apart since I left. And then, of course, the episode is released the day Ukraine's invaded. So I am guilty of many poorly timed jokes, but not one more poorly timed than that one. But what what prompted me to reach out to you, and obviously, I, I just always find our conversations really illuminating. I feel like you've got a very interesting view on things that takes both, I think, a contrarian, but also a real deep historical approach. I've been keeping up with your Twitter feed. And for you listening, you can I would definitely recommend following Ben. I will include his tweet in the uh, outro and in the show notes as well. But you you posted a, one tweet specific about Ukraine that got me thinking. And that's really where I wanted to start the episode, which is I try to avoid speculating about the psychological motivations of particular leaders. It's easier to discuss states because ultimately even authoritarian leaders must keep the military, the oligarchs and the bureaucracy happy. We should talk about Russia more and Putin less. So what did you mean by that? At the time, what I was seeing all over social media was speculation about whether Putin is a crazy person, whether he's insane, whether he's irrational. People trying to come up with understandings of the crisis based on his biography. And I thought that all of that kind of misses how Russia works as a state and the degree to which Putin's legitimacy depends on the continued cooperation of certain discrete institutions. You know, for Putin to be able to govern Russia, the military has to do the things that he tells it to do. The oligarchs have to agree to be kept in line by him. The organs of the state have to continue to function and bring in tax revenue and give that revenue to the troops. 
All of those things have to happen. And if Putin does things that really upset those groups of people, those constituencies, those things will stop happening. So any authoritarian leader, no matter how much we may think of them as a lone autocrat, they can only have power insofar as the people around them continue to do the things that they're told to do. And if enough of them all at once go, this guy's crazy, then they stop listening and the government collapses. Putin has been running Russia since the year 2000. He came into office right around the time that George W. Bush was elected president. For 22 years, he has been able to keep all of those different groups of people happy. So the Putin is crazy narrative to me doesn't sound that plausible. Mm. You don't keep all these different groups of people happy for 22 years if you don't have some level of ability to interpret what those people want, give them enough of what they want that they'll continue to believe in you or continue to be intimidated by you. And so when I look at Russia, I'm going, you know, what is it that the Russian state is concerned about here that Putin's action in some way administers to or addresses? What is it that the Russian military, the Russian bureaucrats, the Russian intelligence services, the Russian intelligentsia, those groups of people think that Russia has some kind of legitimate interest in Ukraine. If they didn't think that, Putin would not be able to rationalize this to them on any level. And I think a lot of the discussion of the Russian justification has focused on the propaganda that's for kind of rank and file troops, ordinary people, which focuses on this idea that Ukraine is a neo-fascist state that is trying to prosecute or commit genocide against uh, Russian language speakers who live in Ukraine. That's the kind of narrative for ordinary people. But the foreign policy circle argument is about preventing Ukraine from joining the European Union and joining NATO. And this has to do with Russia viewing NATO as a hostile alliance that is fundamentally interested in destroying the Russian state and replacing it with some kind of Western puppet government. Uh, the thought is that these, the governments that are installed that are pro-Western in these other countries are being installed with Western help and that that will eventually come to Moscow, that a similar kind of Euromaidan protest will happen in Moscow and then a puppet government will be installed and that that government will, of course, contain totally different people that uh, will behave in a completely different kind of way and won't necessarily ensure that the oligarchs are taken care of, won't necessarily continue to fund the army to anything like the level it's presently funded, you know, poses a, a discrete threat to the interests of the Russian elite. Mm. So for that reason, there is a willingness on the part of the Russian elite to support efforts by Putin to prevent Ukraine from becoming a Western country. But there is a certain level of unease about the specific strategy for doing that and the specific tactics that Putin uses. And we have heard at this point a number of Russian political scientists 
uh, and even some Russian military people, indicating that they are uneasy with the strategy that Putin is using because they're not sure that Russia can succeed in replacing the Ukrainian government with some other government, either in the whole territory of Ukraine or through some kind of partition. It's not clear that that will actually come off because if Zelensky is replaced by a pro-Russian leader, some version of the kind of government which existed in Ukraine before Euromaidan, I don't think Yanukovych personally, but a Yanukovych type Yanukovych was the leader of Ukraine before Euromaidan. Yeah, and he was more pro-Soviet, pro-Russia. Yeah, friendlier to the Russian point of view, yes. Willing to turn down an association agreement with the European Union to instead receive a package of of funding from Russia, and that was what triggered the Euromaidan protests. Yeah. There is skepticism that it really is the case that Putin can install a regime like that in the whole of the country or even in part of the country. And it's not clear whether he intends to try to install that puppet regime in the whole country, in part of the country, or if he's doing this with some other less ambitious intention in mind. But because he has said that he is there to denazify the country, that seems to imply that he intends to remove the Zelensky regime. And if he doesn't remove the regime, there will be questions about why not, given that he said that it's a Nazi regime. Once you say that somebody is a Nazi, it's hard to negotiate with them. It's hard to make concessions to them without appearing very weak. So having framed Zelensky as as a neo-fascist, it becomes very difficult for Putin to negotiate with Zelensky or to leave Zelensky in power, even in a, a rump Western Ukraine. If he does these things, he looks weak. And in Russia, it's all about the strength of the leader. I, I, I want to jump in here because I, I want to kind of boil this down for, for the listener. So, you know, the, the, the first point is the idea of Putin's constituencies. I think when I think there are two mistakes that we make generally when we think about politics and geopolitics. Number one, we don't think of leaders as rational actors. So very often we just assume they're crazy if they're doing something we don't like. That goes for American political leaders as well as foreign. Number two is the idea that even autocracies and dictatorships have constituencies. There are parties you need to keep happy in order to retain power. So tell me, who are Putin's constituents? Well, the army and the oligarchs are the two principal constituencies. What Putin has, uh, Jeffrey Winters in a book called Oligarchy, describes the kind of regime that exists in Russia as a sultanistic oligarchy. Putin is an extremely rich person and he leads a group of rich people who together run much of the Russian economy, control most of the oil and the gas. And Putin is the biggest and the strongest and the wealthiest among them. And he keeps the rest of them in line. If you go back to the 90s when the Soviet Union first collapsed, they had what the Russians called the decade of the thieves, where these oligarchs carved out fiefdoms within the Russian economy using the privatization in the 90s to create these these big, big fiefdoms. Putin comes in and he is associated with bringing some level of order, with keeping these other oligarchs in line. And along the way, Putin himself becomes very rich and becomes the richest and most powerful among them. But he's there both to protect their interests while at the same time 
uh, preventing them from causing disruption or chaos in the rest of the country through their power struggle among themselves. Then you've got the Russian military. A huge amount of Russian output goes to the funding of the Russian military. Russia spends a lot on military for the size of its economy and for its level of wealth as a country. The Russian military is a core constituency that anybody running the Russian state has got to keep on side. If you think back to the Soviet era and to you know, Khrushchev and Khrushchev's removal, the, to the concerns about you know, the, some of the, the leaders of the, the army and the leaders of the security services, those are always major players in Russian internal politics because very often in Russian politics, you have to tell the security services to take care of some particular threat and they have to do that. And if they don't cooperate, or if they start acting on their own and having uh, their own notions of who counts as a legitimate security threat, uh, then things can very quickly get out of hand. In the case of Khrushchev in the 60s, he was deposed by the Soviet state because he was considered to be an insufficiently reliable leader. Right? People might remember Khrushchev as the guy who banged his shoe on the table in the United Nations. He was viewed as, as not somebody that uh, was really tough enough in international politics. Uh, he was a little bit uh, too embarrassing. He conducted himself in a way which was a little bit too openly thuggish. And he was uh, trying to reform a, a lot of aspects of the political system. He was very involved in de-Stalinization. But of course, if you're trying to de-Stalinize the Soviet Union in the 60s, you're also attacking a lot of the narratives, which until recently had been part of maintaining the legitimacy of the country. So in many ways, he was viewed as a destabilizing figure, and he was just quietly removed. To your point, too, he blinked during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. and yes, he that. blinked in a crisis with the West. And, and these kinds of things, Russia is an Orthodox Christian country. And in the old days of the Russian Empire, it referred to itself as the Third Rome because Constantinople had been taken by the Ottoman Empire. The burden of continuing the Roman Empire's legacy fell in their view to them. And the Tsar, you know, Tsar is, is short for Caesar. And a lot of the legitimation mechanics in the Russian Empire bear a passing resemblance to the mechanics of the Byzantine Empire. This focus around a charismatic emperor who has the loyalty of the troops, who enjoys a consensus among the important figures in the state, not necessarily of every person, but a consensus among the nobility, among the, the military leaders. That this is someone who is capable, who is competent, who is tough, and who can lead the armies of the state against its enemies when necessary. You know, that is what makes a Byzantine emperor. That is what makes a Russian czar. And to a large degree, that continued to be what made a Soviet premier and what makes a Russian president. Well, in, even when you were talking about the fact that a Russian leader has to have the military in line, you know, that brought me all the way back to the Cossacks. And for you know those of you who aren't familiar with Russian history, at the time, the Russians were terrorized by the Tatars, which were, I believe, like a, a Mongol-related tribe or something to that effect. But they just, they terrorized the Russians. And it was, 
it was Ivan the Terrible that actually employed the Cossacks. And the Cossacks were effectively thugs. They were just the, the nastiest, most brutish people in society. And they were nastier and more brutish than the Tatars. And ultimately, that was kind of the power structure in Russia. That was the way things, that's the way order was kept. Is through yeah, Russia only became a unified country in response to the Mongol invasion and as yeah. a way of throwing off the yoke of the Golden Horde. You know, prior to that, Novgorod was its own state. Muscovy was its own state. There were a very large number of different Russian princes before the arrival of the Mongols. And it was the contact with the steppe population which forced that state to unify. A relatively common theme, by the way, in, in just in world history in general, you get these big states often because of steppe peoples, migratory steppe peoples who put a lot of pressure on the militaries of small states which border the Eurasian steppe. And so those states to protect themselves end up unifying together into larger states. It's a big part of the reason why there's a unified China, why there's a unified Iran. If, if there wasn't this threat historically of steppe peoples, we would probably see a much larger number of states and maybe a much more pluralistic notion of the peoples who live in these places. Uh, but they've been unified together in large part because of the persistence of that threat. Yeah, there's, there's, I don't have any good stories about the Cossacks, but I have a story about the Tatars that'll give people an idea as to how nasty they were and how much nastier the Cossacks much, must have been, which is, I heard this one story about how the Tatars raided a village, killed everybody they could see in it, burned down all the houses. And when they were done with that, they diverted a river. So it flooded the village just in case anybody was still hiding there. So nasty, nasty people. So you know, bringing it back then to, to present day, Putin needs to keep the military happy. He needs to keep the oligarchs happy. And his response or his policy towards Ukraine is really directed then in keeping those constituencies happy. And to take that a step further, Ukraine becoming either a NATO member, becoming an EU member, becoming a more liberal democracy is a threat to that order effectively. It brings that order closer to Russia and brings Russia closer to becoming an order like that, which sounds great to everybody in the West, but if you're a Russian oligarch or if you're a member of the military and all of a sudden now all the other people in Russia have power, that's a threat to you. Yeah, any change to the distribution of power in Russia is a threat to anybody who currently possesses power in Russia. Regime change in a country is always a threat to the parts of the state that are currently in power. And just like China has uh, this narrative about the century of humiliation uh, and the need to move past that and be seen to move past that and to be seen to be respected in the world and to be taken seriously. And it was in the 90s when NATO expansion began. Uh, and Russia was not strong enough in the 90s and in the early 2000s to meaningfully stop NATO expansion. And one of the ways in which the Russian leader shows that he is not Yeltsin is by standing up to NATO expansion. And there were, there were moments along the way when the United States tried to have a different kind of relationship. People might remember the time when Barack Obama came out with the reset button and Hillary Clinton and the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, held the reset button and it's a whole cute photo op. And that came after George Bush 
had a plan to put uh, a missile defense system in Poland to protect Europe from Iranian missiles. The Russians did not believe that those missiles were about protecting Europe from Iran. They took that missile system as a, a, an attempt by the United States to nullify the nuclear deterrent of the Russian Federation. And so when in 2005, the Bush administration announced that plan, it went over very poorly and contributed to this view that NATO continues to be, it was founded as an anti-Soviet defense pact and that it continues to be an anti-Russian defense pact. Barack Obama agreed to not put those defensive missiles in Poland. But in 2008, Georgia held a referendum on going into NATO and was poised to do it before Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 to prevent that outcome. And in 2014, when Ukraine turned down the European Union Association Agreement, the Euromaidan protests were very vocally encouraged by Western leaders. And the Russians believed that Western leaders supported, funded, bankrolled Euromaidan. The level of support for Euromaidan the degree to which it may have extended beyond rhetoric and into funding or into help from affiliated groups. It's difficult for us to say a lot of those kinds of things are done in a clandestine way, not in the public eye. But the Russians believe that an enormous amount of it was whipped up by the United States and they and view the Euro Maiden thing um, as a coup. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, cu to cut you off there. To be clear, too, I wanted to clue the listener into what you're talking about are the protests in Ukraine that ultimately resulted in the removal of Yanukovych and the Ukraine we have today. Yeah, those protests in, in 2014, which kicked off the crisis in Ukraine, led to the annexation of Crimea by Russia and led to uh, the creation of the separatist states in Donetsk and Luhansk uh, by separatists backed by the Russian state. And so one of the things that's been all over the news is the anti-war sentiment among your average Russian citizen and the protests, keeping in mind the power structure of Russia today, did those protests even matter? So I, I don't, I, I wouldn't want to say that the protests don't matter at all. Certainly it's not a good look for Russia to have thousands of people on the streets of Moscow protesting. But I think the thing that is often left out of that coverage is the fact that Putin's approval rating nationwide has gone up about 10 points over the last six months. So in Russian cities where there are very large numbers of educated young people like Moscow or St. Petersburg, there are enough people there who are more liberal minded that you can have sizable protests in Moscow or St. Petersburg. But it is often not the case that that is reflective of sentiment in Russia as a whole. So when Putin stands up to the West, his approval rating goes up nationally. Putin's approval rating is at about 71%. And in general, the people who live in the capital and in St. Petersburg and a few other cities get very upset uh, the Moscow Times, a lot of the, the newspapers that cater to the expat audiences, they, they've been very, very critical. And there have been 
uh, a lot of political scientists in Russia who've been involved in the peace movement, who are based in universities in these large cities. But the bulk of Russia is not uh, metropolitan in that kind of way and has uh, a different opinion about this. It's more willing to believe the propaganda in part because it has fewer alternative sources of information. There's a huge, vast expanse of non-city. How do you have an idea? How much? How does the Russian population break down in terms of, you know, cosmopolitan metro dwellers and folks in outside of those areas? Well, a lot of the Russian population is uh, you're living in in land that is mainly devoted to farming or to mining or to gas. A uh, huge amount of the Russian economy comes from oil and gas. The oil and gas outfits are way out in the countryside, and a large part of the population depends on the oil and gas industry. A lot of the oligarchs, their wealth comes from the oil and gas industry. During the Soviet period, whole populations were moved into the interior of the country to exploit the mineral wealth and to drill for oil and gas. There are small Russian cities. I wouldn't really want to call them cities because Politically, they're not like St. Petersburg or Moscow. They don't have the same kind of, of big universities. They're, they're mainly mining towns. So a lot of the mid-sized towns and cities in Russia are there because there's mineral wealth there, because there's oil and gas nearby. Uh, they're not places that are you know, a service economy built around a bunch of universities and a bunch of uh, media or, or the arts. Uh, a lot of these more regional, smaller cities and towns are there because there's minerals or because there's oil or because there's gas. This is all sounding a lot like America, where you have these urban cloisters of left-leaning, educated service workers, and then this vast countryside of you know, agriculture, of mining, and, and that tends to skew more traditional. And in the case of Russia, traditional would long for the days of a strong Russia, whether that's an imperial Russia or a Soviet Russia, one that's like a muscular player on the world stage. Well, and in these traditional regions, you know, the argument for the ordinary people in these regions is that you have this neo-fascist government in Ukraine that is despoiling the you know, orthodox Christian legacy of the country in favor of the European Union and its secularism and its homosexuality and, and all of these other things that are you know, associated with Western Europe, Western decadence yeah. in these regions. You know, that's the, the kind of line for the ordinary person. But the bulk of the reason why this is happening is that the military and the oligarchs trust Putin enough that they're continuing to go along with this. The thing is, if Zelensky is not deposed, if the Russians don't do enough to make the point that they've won the war, if it's ambiguous about whether they've won, or if it ends in something that looks like a Russian defeat, there could be a collapse in support for Putin among those core constituencies, mm -hmm. especially because Russia's going to get sanctioned for this, and those sanctions are not going to be worth it if it ends in something that does not look like a Russian victory. It has to be at least something that can be sold to these audiences. They have to have it sold to them that this is some kind of victory in the end. And that's why there is no question about how far the Russians 
will ultimately be willing to go here. Putin will have to continue to escalate the attack until he is able to get something that looks like a win out of this. And the only kind of negotiations that can work are negotiations that involve giving Putin something which he can present as a win. Uh, and if the West and if Zelensky are not able to give Putin something which he can present as a win, and it's hard for them to because he has said that Zelensky is a neo-fascist, and therefore in negotiations he tends to demand things like Zelensky's resignation, you know, that makes it very, very difficult for any kind of negotiated settlement. And if there can't be a negotiated settlement, then the need for Putin to maintain legitimacy in Russia compels him to use ever more aggressive tactics to take these cities. And so the longer the conflict goes on, the more Russia escalates its tactics. It starts by just driving in some tanks and hoping that everyone will see the tanks and welcome the Russian troops as liberators. But once it becomes clear that that isn't going to happen, then there's a transition to artillery and airstrikes. And the Russian fighter fleet has barely even come out yet. And so a lot of the nastiest weapons that Russia has have not yet been deployed in this fight or have only been deployed a little bit. And I think that if this goes on, we may eventually see Russia transition to the kind of tactics it used during the Chechen war. When Putin first came to power, he was trying to make the point that he was going to deliver stability. And so the separatists who lived in Chechnya were going to be brutally punished to make a statement that this kind of disorder would not be tolerated. And so Putin laid siege to the city of Grozny in Chechnya. And Grozny held out for six weeks and by the time it was done, 5,000 to 8,000 civilians had been killed and most of the city had been physically destroyed. And the number of civilian casualties would have been much higher if, if people had not fled before this happened. Grozny has a population of under 300,000. Kiev is a much larger city, much larger in excess of a million. If those kinds of tactics are used, on the major population centers of Ukraine, it will be extremely, extremely horrible. And I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Yeah. One of the things that I was really encouraged by was how bold the EU was specifically in sanctioning Russia and how bold they were in offering military aid. Uh, because they're obviously much more integrated with the Russian economy than we are here in the U.S. The, the flip side of that is that the world can't afford to stop trading with Russia. The U.S. can't afford to stop trading with Russia. The EU can't. We depend on them for fuel and for minerals and for iron. So the question I have for you is, are these sanctions enough? Are these sanctions enough to change the calculation of the oligarchs and the military? No. The sanctions still include major carve-outs for oil and gas, which is the principal export uh, that Russia has. One of my professors at University of Chicago once jokingly referred to Russia as a big gas station. Mm -hmm. So 
if energy is not included in the sanctions regime, and so far it's not, the cancellation of Nord Stream 2 mainly affects future oil and gas trade, not present oil and gas trade. And a part of the reason why oil and gas hasn't been included is that Russia strategically selected this moment to push this issue because of the energy crisis in Europe, because of the level of inflation that Western countries are currently experiencing. If Western countries allow the price of energy to rise, it will exacerbate an already existing energy crisis, and it will further increase inflation by, some estimates have multiple percentage points if we were to, the whole of NATO to refuse to trade oil and gas with Russia. So for that reason, European governments have been very skittish about including energy. Now, they're doing lots of other things, lots of relatively high-profile, highly visible things, uh, which gives an impression that lots of help is, is coming. But that ultimately is going to make these sanctions unable to by themselves be enough to stop Russia from continuing. And, and getting back to where P Putin derives his support as well, the people who dislike Putin the most are the people who are probably the hurt, the most hurt by it as well. Because again, right, his supporters are generally in the oil and gas and mineral producing regions. Yes, be because so much of the Russian economy depends on oil and gas. The richest people in Russia who have the most political influence are oil and gas people. So yeah, those people are not going to be real. You can target them with personal sanctions that affect their ability to travel or their ability to access their properties that they own in London. But if you don't target the oil and gas industry, the ultimate source of their wealth will remain intact. And they'll hope to maybe sit this, you know, to, to wait it out. And then eventually after the crisis is over, maybe some European countries will soften their position on the sanctions and they'll be able to get access to some of the things that have been frozen or locked up. And then after it's done, then they're hoping that they can gradually negotiate back down all of those sanctions. And if we, if we take this big picture and again, boil it down for the listener, we have a situation where all Putin needs to retain power effectively is for oil and gas revenues to continue to come into Russia. That part has been untouched. The parts of the economy that are being hurt are, are affecting uh, the, the people who dislike Putin the most. So your average Russian, your average Putin supporter is not going to be shopping at the IKEA that closed as a result of Russian sanctions. Well, if we were to try to get them to stop purely on the basis of sanctions, then they would have to include energy. Now, I'm not certain that even if we did include energy, if that would immediately cause the Russians to stop or to pull out. They might think that they can have this done relatively soon and that once it's over, the sanctions that we have done will in large part be lifted because of that political pressure. That if they were to be sanctioned on energy, that we would probably pull it back in some number of weeks or some number of months after things cool down. So I'm not certain that energy sanctions would ultimately finish this off. That would be if you're going to do it purely with sanctions, those would need to be part of it for a sanction strategy to have any chance of success. But I don't think it's a sure thing because of the degree to which Russia is committed to this 
and the difficulty politically for Russia to take a defeat. The government really has a hard time admitting defeat. People may remember the invasion of Afghanistan in the 80s. The Soviet Union stayed in Afghanistan much longer than it made any sense to stay because it feared that if it pulled out, that would look like a defeat and that that would lead to the destruction of the government. As it happens, the collapse of the Soviet Union was only a few years after the pullout from Afghanistan. And the pullout from Afghanistan did probably contribute in some way to collapsing confidence in Soviet institutions. It wasn't that it immediately resulted in the dissolution, but it certainly contributed to an environment in which those institutions seemed incapable of managing Soviet Soviet interests. You know, I think I, similarly I to, oh, here- you, you keep going, uh, sorry, I keep talking over you here. Oh yeah, just similarly here, I think that that kind of sanctions regime would be a, a significant step, but not, in, not necessarily enough to save Ukraine. The things that might save Ukraine would also destroy it because they would escalate to World War III, things like the no-fly zone, things like attacking the Russian convoy outside of Kyiv. Th- those kinds of moves would escalate to World War III, and World War III would be fought in large part on Ukrainian territory, and so that would be even more devastating, I think, to the people of Ukraine than the current situation. The other thing that is sometimes talked about is is long-term investments in renewables, because long-term investments in renewables will ultimately remove the dependency on oil and gas, and in the long run, improve the ability of the European Union to have an autonomous policy without having to focus so much on oil and gas. There are a number of European Union countries that still get more than half of their oil and gas from Russia. Germany is among them. Uh, and some that get 100% of their oil and gas from Russia. If those states are able to transition to alternatives, then that would greatly improve in the future the ability of NATO to check Russian advances in the region. But whether it can all be done economically from today, from the standpoint right now, I, I think it's dubious. I don't think that publics in European, in Europe or in the United States would be prepared for the economic cost of including oil and gas in the sanctions. I think Russia probably got it right in calculating that we would not be willing to do that at this particular moment with the degree to which inflation has already become a major political issue. I think probably the Russians calculated that correctly. Part of the reason they did it now is because they do anticipate that in the years to come, Europe's going to transition away from oil and gas. And as it does that, Russian leverage will decrease. I think the argument for doing something now from the Russian point of view is that this might be the point of maximum Russian leverage, that there might never be another point at which the European economies are as vulnerable to Russian pressure as they are right now, right this minute. It sounds to me then like even if Western leaders were to sell their voters on the concept of entering into a period of economic decline for the sake of Ukraine, that probably wouldn't even save it. At the very least, it would be far from a sure thing because the Russians are already in. And once they're in politically, it's very hard for them to go home without something that looks like a win. Very, very hard. And if people get deposed, if a government falls in Russian politics, that can lead to the end of the lives of the people who are being deposed. So it's, it's not just a question of, oh, you might lose an election and you might go home in disgrace, which itself is a powerful enough incentive often to get governments to do all sorts of things that we might regard as 
morally dubious. Uh, but if your life potentially is on the line and in an authoritarian state, your life always is, if you go out of power, you may not survive that. It becomes very difficult to do things which risk the dissolution of the government. And for that reason, I think at this point, it would be very, very hard for Russia to withdraw without something that looks like a win from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And to add another layer to that, if we were to do what some people are advocating, which is enter there militarily, Russia is only going to double down on that. Yes. Then the number of people who die increases exponentially. I, I, you know, I was having a conversation with someone the other day who you know, said, you know, we know where those tanks are. We know where that tank column is. Everybody knows where it is. It's on television. You know, they got cameras on it. Why can't we just blow it up and save the capital? And I said, well, that would lead to World War III. And, and uh, this person said, well, you know, okay, why is that a, such a bad thing? I think some people do not realize that the number of people who would die if there is a no-fly zone or if Americans attack the Russian forces in Ukraine, the number of people who are likely to die and the amount of territory that the war would be fought in and the number of additional countries in which there would be fighting and war violence would increase exponentially, possibly by one, two, or even three orders of magnitude. It is really not something that anybody in policy, uh, in a policymaking position is seriously considering. There are some journalists who are talking about this and who are asking policymakers about it as if it's a reasonable thing that we might do. And this is, I think, leading to a lot of ordinary Americans and ordinary Europeans imagining that maybe it is a reasonable thing to do because journalists are asking about it as if it's something that would be a realistic option. But this is something which, you know, at the extremist could lead to nuclear war. And so it is just not something that is going to be done. So, and I, I'm, I'm going to speak about this rather coldly. So before I get into that, I, I, I want to humanize this situation for everyone. And, and I'm, I'm just going to ask if you're listening and you can do this too, Ben, but you know, you're the guest, so you can do what you want. But I, I want, if you're listening, think about the last time you were tired and you were hungry. Like for me, I can recount times where maybe I was, I had a flight that was canceled and I was stuck in an airport and it took me hours, maybe days to get home. And by the time I got home, I was so tired and I was so weary and all I wanted was a shower and a grilled cheese sandwich. That was it. Right. And now imagine that situation playing out over the course of a week with your heating gone, maybe your electricity is gone, you're getting shelled, people are dying, you're worried about dying. That's what folks are going through right now. That's what people are going through right now over there. You know, I don't know the situation, but supermarkets are going to run out of food. People are going to get desperate. The things that we rely on to just live, much less be comfortable, are going to become scarce. And so I want everybody to just think about that And then now that out of the way, I'm going to say the next thing, which is very cold and doesn't take that into consideration, which is, is the best case scenario and a prolonged occupation of Ukraine with an insurgency funded by Western powers? 
is that the best way to do it? Is the best way to do it to just effectively let the Russians bleed out in Ukraine? I think that is what will happen. I think that if they, on the assumption that they will eventually take Kyiv and they succeed in deposing the government, I think that what will happen is some portion of the Ukrainian military will melt away into the countryside and with Western funding continue on the fight. Whether that happens in a partitioned Ukraine or in a single Ukraine under one particular Russian puppet leader, the thing is it will, it will completely destroy the economy of Ukraine and it will plunge the living standards in Ukraine to prevent Ukraine from becoming a Russian satellite state like Belarus, we're, we're getting into a situation in which Ukraine will instead become a state that is constantly under arms. And we're looking at a situation where Ukraine potentially turns into a Syria-type case, where there is a proxy war fought between great powers in its territory that it doesn't really have a whole lot of agency in, and it's incredibly tragic that the misfortune as a country to be caught in between NATO and the Russian Federation and to not have a side. It's a situation that is so grim and there are so few things I could imagine anyone doing that would prevent uh, it from going that way. I can't really see any other way for it to end because I do not think that the Russians will succeed in, in just turning Ukraine into Belarus. I do not think that Ukraine will be happy with a government like the Lukashenko government, which is a very nasty authoritarian government in its own right. And I think that is so sad. And the people there deserve so much better than this set of options. And the, the awful thing is that both NATO and uh, Russia are unwilling and unable to take the sacrifices that would be necessary to enable the Ukrainians to potentially have some other possibility. And the competition between the two for power and influence in the region is going to greatly diminish the chances for millions of people. And it is so sad that there is no way of getting out of it. So... And I, 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 again, I, I feel like we should spend some more time on this, but there's 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 other stuff I want to get to. I guess before before I move on, in terms of a of a face saving measure, is there anything? Is there any brokered peace between the West and Russia that could potentially end this? Whether it's declaring Ukraine a neutral state or something to that effect. NATO will not do that, in part because it was unwilling to do it in the first place when Russia asked for it, but secondly, because Russia has tried to push the issue with force. Now NATO cannot concede that without enabling the Russians to change diplomatic situations with violence. What's more, because Russia has troops in the territory, I think the Russians are going to want more than just that. It would not surprise me if they also wanted Zelensky out. 
or if they uh, even wanted to do some kind of partition of Ukraine. I can't see the Ukrainians agreeing to a lot of the things. The Zelensky government in particular cannot agree to, to quit and go home. It, it had the option to do that. The United States offered to fly Zelensky out in the opening days of the war. And Zelensky said he wasn't going to do that, that he was going to stay on and he was going to fight, which was a very courageous decision by him personally. He's staying in a capital city that is going to be under siege and he's putting himself in great danger. But of course, once, if, if Zelensky is not willing to resign to end the war, then the war continues and potentially escalates. Uh, and I can't see the Russians accepting a lot of the other kinds of proposals that I've seen people make because the, the Russian military, having gone all the way in here, has to accomplish something that it can sell. Mm. And that it, the bar for doing that, I think, is, is higher than people realize. I, I want to end with an article I actually just read today in Foreign Affairs that plays out how this would end. And the best case scenario, it seems, for Putin is that Russia becomes this economically isolated autocracy. Yeah, I don't think that Ukraine can become another Belarus. And the only way that this could wrap up quickly would be something like that. So, yeah, I think that what a lot of these authoritarian states have found is that be being economically isolated from the West does not necessarily mean that the government collapses, especially if you have oil and gas because a lot of countries will want to find a way to continue to trade with you if you have oil and gas, even if they, in many other respects, don't like the government. So for instance, a big part of the reason why we, had, we, we signed the Iran nuclear agreement is that the Europeans wanted to stop having to sanction Iran because they wanted to buy Iranian oil and gas, in part because Iranian oil and gas is an alternative to Russian oil and gas. And so even though Iran is economically isolated from the United States, its oil reserves make it difficult for other countries to completely isolate it on a permanent basis. Uh, if Russia gets to a point where oil and gas no longer give it any leverage in continuing to have some kind of trade relationship with European states, it may be, be forced to become more like North Korea and of course, North Korea is a much smaller and a much weaker state. But by this, I mean it may be forced to bandwagon with China increasingly heavily to become dependent on China for trade and economic survival. And as China strengthens, the ability of Russia to turn to China as an alternative way of keeping its economy going increases. So as Russia gets weaker, China gets stronger. And so it becomes more and more likely that instead of, a say, co-equal partnership, what you get is Russia as a kind of appendage uh, or vassal state of China. And that's what we may eventually push uh, Russia into doing. Much like North Korea exists to harass the U.S. allies in the region on China's behalf and kind of do their dirty work, Russia would effectively be doing the same for China in the West. Yeah. 
yeah, I think that is probably where in the long run this is this is headed. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth and word of mouth only. Uh, I would also strongly recommend following Ben on Twitter. You can find him at BM Studebaker. That is B-M-S-T-U-D-E-B-A-K-E-R if you were writing that down. So to sum things up, for Putin, this war is literally life or death. To withdraw would result in his removal, and the sanctions don't touch a large swath of the country where he gets the bulk of his support, in so much as Russia is a democracy. Now, the world also needs Russia's resources, so a sanctions regime that would have real teeth would also invite global recession, if not a depression. And that being said, there might be no other way. Uh, a, a bigger theme here is the why of all this. You know, the decision to invade Ukraine was in response to its continued move towards being a Western-style liberal democracy. And this, in and of itself, poses a threat to the current order in Russia, which is focused on enriching the oligarchy. And as I'm processing all this, I really think we all need to revisit as a country or as a world order or whatever our dealings with autocracies because it's been a marriage of convenience to date, but we also know that things have a tendency to go wrong and if our supply chains or our resources are tied up in them, that can be fairly catastrophic. We are not going to solve that problem today. Sorry, folks. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.